Hi, you're listening to Reader Radio from the Omaha Reader, Omaha's alternative monthly newspaper. Uh, my name is Chris Bowling, and I am sitting here today with Emma Schartz, our editorial intern. Uh, Emma, why don't you talk a little bit about um, the podcast that our listeners are going to hear today? Yeah, so for the upcoming two-part series that we have going on, we invited uh, Megan Smith-Salins and Ryan Salins to come in and talk about inclusivity and uh, how we can make spaces more welcoming for genderqueer people and what that looks like. And so for this episode, we touch a little bit more on Megan and Ryan's uh, childhood experiences growing up with questioning their own gender and sexuality, and then also uh, their perspectives as older queer people and what is affecting our youth today, uh, focusing a lot on internet culture and social media. For you as the interviewer, I mean, like, what were some of the things that really jumped out to you um, that, you know, our listeners might want to, you know, pay attention or watch out for? Yeah, uh, I definitely think that Ryan's personal story of growing up in Aurora uh, was super interesting and touching and how he talks about uh, searching for meaning in media and music and TV shows. But also I think Ryan and Megan had a lot of interesting things to say sort of about uh, the anxieties and worries of young people, especially young queer and trans people. Um, you know, being a young person who's grown up on the internet with the internet and hearing their concerns as older people uh, sort of about the impacts that that's having on mental health and resources and how young people are able to find their identity in the new internet age. Very cool. All right. Well, without further ado, I guess uh, let's get into the interview. So uh, stay tuned for this uh, talk uh, with Emma Schartz, uh, Ryan Salins, and Megan Smith Salins about inclusivity. And yeah, let's get into it. So my name is Megan Smith-Salins, and I am a psychotherapist here in Omaha, and I've been practicing since 2003. Um, The majority of my practice is made up of people who um, identify as LGBTQ+. Um, I work with children as young as three who are exploring gender through the lifespan, so I have a lot of experience in working with youth, children and youth, as well as families. I work, um, well, actually, I just resigned in January. I was the director of behavioral health at UNMC's Transgender Care Clinic, um, and that had me in a role of meeting with any youth who came through the clinic who was interested in starting puberty blockers, hormone therapy, or was trying to access um, gender affirmation surgeries. Um, I run a support group for parents and caregivers raising gender expansive youth. I started out my career actually working with trans individuals who were involved in sex work and sex trafficking. Um, So I did a lot of work with um, people who had been incarcerated as well. So I did a lot of work in our county jails, our day reporting centers, and also our penitentiaries. Um, So that's how I got started in working specifically with the trans community. I had written a grant and got funded to do HIV AIDS prevention work with um, trans folks who were in sex work. So, um, And then I moved into private practice because the grant was pretty limited in who I could see. And I had a lot of people, this would have been in the late 90s, early 2000s, and so the landscape has changed dramatically um, as regarding trans care in Omaha, but at the time there really was no services. My name is Ryan Salins, and I'm an international speaker and author of the books Second Son and Transforming Manhood. Um, since 2005, I've been outing myself almost daily as a transgender man, and that began, I should be careful in the seat, it's a little bit squeaky there, it sounds like a goose. Uh, (laughs) uh, So I began actually after leaving from my second master's program and being hired with Planned Parenthood as a health educator. Uh, And right when I walked through those doors, I proclaimed that I wanted Planned Parenthood to offer hormone therapy services to the transgender community. There was no reason they shouldn't, they're a sexual and reproductive healthcare organization. And they were like, and I joke about this, because, again, this was in 2005, very different landscape than 2021. 
uh, when I just walk in as a new health ed- educator saying that, they're like, okay, health educator, that's nice. <laughs> Go along your way. Uh, and so I figured out a way to make it happen. Um, and with the merger with Planned Parenthood Greater Iowa, um, I believe it was four years later, we became one of the first affiliates in the nation to offer uh, hormone therapy services to the trans community. Uh, I worked for Planned Parenthood for six and a half years before deciding it was time for me to broaden my horizons. And so I moved into being self-employed. And now I work with corporations, uh, the federal government. Uh, I actually became the first person outside a jurist to address the U.S. state courts for a Heritage Month event in June, for June Pride Month. Uh, and so I, my work is heavily focused now on breaking down the misperceptions or misconceptions, I should say, of the transgender community uh, at the corporate level, government level, and then also within communities for families and then also people that are exploring gender. Wow. Okay. So then just to clarify, that Planned Parenthood, was that like one in Nebraska or Omaha? Yes. So when I was hired, it was Planned Parenthood in Nebraska and Council Bluffs. Uh, and then we merged, I believe it was four years later, I believe it was in 2009, don't quote me on that, uh, with Planned Parenthood Greater Iowa. And so then we became Planned Parenthood the Heartland. So Planned Parenthood Greater Iowa in Des Moines already had a practitioner that was offering hormone therapy services. His name was Dr. Joseph, his name is Dr. Joseph Freund. Uh, and so he started offering hormone therapy services back in 1998 because he saw a need and no one else was doing it. Uh, and so I had done the work to train the staff in the Lincoln offices, because that's where we're looking to begin. And then with the merger, that allowed this opportunity because of his knowledge and his medical direction, we joined together to do further trainings. And that's when Lincoln then became one of the first in the nation. Wow, that's crazy. I had no idea about that. Um, so I guess to kind of start the conversation off, you know, what does inclusivity mean to each of you? I'll let you begin since uh, I was just uh, talking. Uh, no, I can go. I need to think about that for a second. You talk about this well, all day. Yeah, I'm a so, listener. I don't talk that sure. much. I'm a therapist. Uh, well, I do have my title now as working in inclusion, diversity, and healthcare. And the reason why I chose that title is because to create inclusivity is to create environments where people do not feel judged for how they look how they act, how they feel, who they're partnered with. Uh, to be able to be in a space where you can feel free to be yourself uh, and not feel discriminated against or harassed. And so my work is trying to make it where people treat each other nicer. And if you don't have anything nice to say, don't say anything at all. <laughs> uh, do your work, do some self-awareness building uh, and understand why you may have biases or why you do have biases uh, and tr- do work to continue to improve yourself so that you can have better communication with your coworkers, with your colleagues, with um, your friends and your family members. Yeah, do you help people with that kind of self-awareness training or grappling? So I don't necessarily do training. Um, So I guess the self-awareness would come to, for me when I present, it would be through the storytelling that I do. Because what I have found, and one of the reasons why I do storytelling, where I out myself and share my own personal journey of transitioning from female to male, uh, is because people can connect with me. Because even though we're walking different paths and they may not have the exact same experiences, we've all been impacted by the way we've become a gendered society and how we try to push people into boxes or categories. Uh, And so through my struggles, people connect to it and it helps them start to think a little bit more deeply about things that have happened to them in their own past. Well, that's kind of my whole job is self-awareness and helping people who are interested. Obviously, they come to me if they're interested in doing some deeper work. But as I was sitting here thinking about what inclusivity means to me or to the people I work with, I suppose it. I was thinking about this um, uh, Jungian analyst that I really respect named James Hillman. And he always says, the goal is not resolution. The goal is spaciousness. And I think that's what inclusivity means for me, is creating enough spaciousness that all parts of ourselves get to exist. Now, that also means that you get choice around which parts you may or may not want to share with people. But that I think self-awareness is making room for all of those parts of yourself. Um, but also an environment where you feel that those parts can exist, even if you choose not to share them. Um, Because I think there's something that happens, a splitting that can happen with the self if you're entering into a workplace, a school, a family, where you feel like those parts of you um, do not have a place or are unacceptable. So I think the, the real key is like that you get to choose to share, but that there's space enough for all of you to exist. Yeah, definitely. Um, So then I guess, Ryan, to talk a little bit more about um, 
the work that you do. You know, I'm wondering, so are you going around the country and kind of giving talks and going into like corporate workplaces uh, to help with diversity? Or could you talk a little bit more about kind of that work that you do? Yeah, well, I do many things. (laughs) Uh, I forgot to mention my intro. I also for set oh from at least 2008 to 2020 when I resigned I was the lead subject matter expert and author for e-learning courses that are CME certified meaning they're they're credentialed for medical providers um, these courses were picked up by the human rights campaign for part of their healthcare equality index so training hospital systems across the nation on how to be LGBTQ friendly and also competent um, and so I work within the healthcare system, corporate America, and also universities. Uh, I do trainings on how to create trans-inclusive campuses, and I've written a blog on how to find trans-inclusive campuses for your children to try to assist parents um, during this time. So I'll go into any of those areas and assist people, and what I really do is first educate people on human sexuality. How cool is it that I'm in corporate America talking about human sexuality? I love it so much. (laughs) Um, And the reason why I do that is because I think making it human takes away from a label and focus, like, for example, just focusing on LGBT identities versus all of our identities because we are all sexual beings. Uh, And so I educate everyone around the differences between our sex, our gender, our expression, and our orientation. Um, And that's where the inclusion comes in because this is something that's part of all of us and we've all been impacted and we're all continually working on messy relationships. Mm -hmm. Yeah, did you grow up in an inclusive LGBTQ environment? <laughs> I grew up in Aurora, Nebraska, a small farming town um, in the 80s. So I was born in 79. So, and, so we did not talk about LGBT identities or issues like we talk about them today. Um, I will say, though, my saving grace during that time is I was a Gen Xer that got raised by really great music and really great TV shows. It just made you feel <laughs> deeply. It was very emo at the time. <laughs> so that helped me because those shows and this, the uh, songs that people sang were exploring these topics. So it helped me explore my own a little bit deeper. Yeah, what were some of those shows or you know, media, music? Oh, well, you know, you, you could watch like My So-Called Life. Um, I love that show. It is so good. I'm rewatching it right now. I'm like, oh my gosh, it's even better as you're older. <laughs> is it really? I love it. it. So that was like one of the shows that I watched throughout like teenage girlhood that I was like, I am Angela Chase. Yes. We all are Angela Chase. Yes. How Look, beautiful Look, I'm not, I don't want to pretend like. No, I don't, I don't want to pretend either. I'm glad you liked it. But no, I didn't. Like it. I loved it. Uh, God, there's another one. I'm blanking on it. But I'm thinking of the movie Boys on the Side. Fried Green Tomatoes. That's a good one. Uh, TLC was the very first album or CD I ever bought. So they got me through a lot of exploring sexuality and having confidence in yourself and not being ashamed for how you feel. <laughs> so, yeah, Shell uh, Crow. She really got me through a lot, too. So there's just different things that took me on a journey. One of my really favorite ones, actually, was something about, if I, da-da-da-da-da, oh my gosh, I can't remember the lyrics, it's none of your business. (laughs) Like, and it was really racy and fun and I know my dad was listening to this and he got so mad at me he came downstairs and yelled at me for listening to this music because it was just talking about sex and being a hoe and everything it's no your business and I loved it It was very empowering (laughs) yeah definitely how did you um like have access to you know this type of media in Aurora were there like local record stores or music stores that you were going to or uh well so I would have bought TLC probably in Grand Island so you didn't go to Aurora to buy this stuff. I mean, maybe they had stuff. I don't know. But we'd go to Grand Island to go shopping. That's a fun thing to do. Get out of your town and go somewhere else. The big city for us. Um, and so I'd probably go like to Walmart or somewhere and buy it. Um, or we had Columbia Records. So you sign up and then you pay like $10 to start out. Then you pay pennies for CDs and they just ship you all these CDs. So that's how I got the majority of my music. Wow. Okay. So then... That media was sort of um, kind of an escape or a way for you to 
talk and think about these emotions, but what did that kind of childhood environment look like? Were you, so then were you searching for like ways to feel empowered and kind of your feelings and sexuality and all of these things that we do when we're growing up or, I mean, what did that look like? Well, I think, you know, we all are searching <laughs> all the time. Uh, for me, I, I, you know, my, my searching included dating it included um, crushes on girls and boys. It included, oh, this is kind of hard. Like, I don't know. I have to get into a big story, get my brain wrapped around that to give you something really beautiful to say around that. So I'm making well, I'm just, well, yeah, because <laughs> when you're talking, I'm like thinking like, let's go back, babe, because let's go back even to the swimsuit, to the movie that made such a huge impact on you. Well, so when I was around seven years old, I had this realization for the first time. A voice actually came in to my head. I was washing my hands. I was outside playing after school. We lived in the country. And I was washing my hands before dinner. And I was looking in the mirror, and I was really sad first because I have green eyes. And I really wanted blue eyes because Superman has blue eyes, who I idolized. And my mom and brother had blue eyes. So I was like, darn it, right? And then... After I realized I wasn't going to have blue eyes, another voice came into my head and said, you're a girl. You're not a boy. And I remember at that moment thinking verbatim, this really sucks. I've got dealt a bad deck of cards, and I need to live with this the rest of my life, and I don't know if I can. And I started to become very depressed, and I started to start having suicidal thoughts. Uh, something that helped me during that time was I stumbled upon a movie called Something Special, the other title for it, it had two working titles. It was a flop. Uh, I love it, though. I think you can find it for free on YouTube now. But the other title for it was Willy Millie, and it was about a little girl who wished on stars and became a boy. Now you got to think. Your deepest, your darkest heart's desire. Truly a miracle has happened to Millie. And now the fun begins. Last night, she was a girl. This morning, she's a movie unlike anything you've seen before. Now, when I was young boy, this is a guy's thing, Stephanie. Can you do things with it? I don't know. I woke up and there it was. And so that was like my linchpin that keep me grounded uh, is wishing on stars to hope that I could wake up and be myself too one day. Wow. So you were already starting to have those thoughts kind of at, you know, seven years old, right? Well, so even before that, I started just finding that I aligned with my dad and my brother in forms of expression that felt right for me versus my mom, my sister. So when I was even younger, around two and a half to three years old, which this is my first memory of gender. My mom, we, we lived in a country and I was a lucky kid that had a pool in my backyard. My dad put one in. He was a chiropractor. Um... Nowadays, I think it would be fun to have a pool, but I wouldn't want to do all that work and pay all the expenses. So, yeah. But anyways, so we had a pool in our backyard, and uh, my mom put me in this bright, hot pink bikini. And I remember looking at my dad and my brother in their swimming trunks, and my mom and my sister in their bathing suits. And I proceeded to take the top part off so they could have swimming trunks like my dad and my brother. Uh, so that was my first memory of looking out and trying to adjust myself. Mm hmm And Megan, I mean, so what have your experiences been maybe also growing up uh, you know, if you grew up in kind of an inclusive environment for LGBTQ plus identities and also maybe talk a little bit about your work. And, you know, you said you work with kids as young as three years old who are starting to have these thoughts about gender and sexuality and everything like that. Oh, this is interesting because usually I'm not the one answering. Ryan's so used to answering like really personal questions about it. I'm not used to that. So let me think. Um, I would say the environment. Yes, I would say um, I grew up in Omaha. Um, so I wasn't in a small town. And I would say that I grew up in a single parent family. There were so many things to worry about. This wasn't one of them for my mom. <laughs> so I don't think um, certainly growing up, I... Uh, can identify with the feelings of not necessarily how Ryan identifies with gender, but certainly like I was always the tallest girl. Actually used to dress up like a boy and try to see if I could pass um, when I was younger. And I did. And we always joke that sometimes when we're out, um, I'm the one who gets misgendered a lot because uh, 
when I'm in a baseball cap and some shorts. But um, my family, as far as LGBTQ plus identities, is very welcoming, very supportive. I've never had any, um, like I said, I think there were so many things in my family system that were there to worry about. This was like the least of it. So I'm very uh, lucky in that sense. As far as the kids I work with, um, yeah, I tend to, I always say this when I do trainings, I tend to get phone calls at, um, especially during childhood, during three ages, I will get phone calls sometimes around the age of three. Um, so one of the things that Ryan and I talk about a lot is that what we know right now is that uh, kids as young as 18 months old can have a sense of their gender identity. And the only reason we even put the number on there is that's really the onset of language development. So that's when kids can start expressing themselves more and communicating to the world who they are. Um, I think up until that point, most parents allow kids some ambiguity in that. So um, not to say that I don't get phone calls around for kids around the age of three, um, but most of the phone calls I get are typically around five and six because that's when kids are going to school. And so one of the things I talk about with parents a lot is there's a lot of kids who do what I call gender by location. So like at home, they have access to whatever toys, access to whatever clothes, access to, you know, uh, essentially explore and be themselves. But then like when they go to school or go to church or go somewhere else, that that's uh, maybe when they transition to more quote unquote traditional um, forms of, of gender expression depending on their sex assigned at birth. So you can understand why school might pose that kind of crux for a lot of families, which is how do we navigate the school system? And also I always say like kids learn how to do gender at school. Um, kids are very gender specific or can be. There's a lot of rules around gender when you get to school. When you look at gender identity development in children, up until I would say probably about seven or eight, there's a lot of magical thinking still, just as Ryan kind of shared with that concretization of the eye color and the awareness of like, oh, I can't change. Up until that point, most kids think they can grow up and be a dolphin if they want to someday. So they still have that kind of imaginal space with gender too. So when they start to get to school and those concepts, both in their own development, but then in their peer relationships are getting more concretized, it can, it can create conflict between who I know myself to be and how the others expect me to be. So I get phone calls around that time and then also around um, the onset of puberty, which can be very, very um, traumatic for a lot of gender expansive youth with um, their bodies changing. And so I get calls at that time from parents because they're seeing a lot more depression or anxiety or um, self-harming behaviors. Um, and then obviously in high school, you know, adolescence is a time for that exploration. I think things are changing, certainly, um, with regards to adolescence. I think gender and sexual orientation have just become what adolescents explore now. I mean, before it was like the rare of us who were queer or trans identified, but now I think all adolescents, which is one of the beauties of this gender evolution, revolution, whatever you want to call it, is that people feel entitled to get to explore that part of themselves. And so we're seeing a lot of that in adolescents too. Yeah, um, you know, kind of thinking about the schools and that being a place where kids learn about gender, what do you think um, inclusive school spaces look like or what should they look like in your opinion? Yeah, this is a great question because school is the bane of so many kids I see its existence. It's such a stressful place for them. And I think one of the things that I talk about a lot is that I think um, a few things. One is what the policy is and what the culture is can be two different things. And so a lot of schools will have zero tolerance policies. And yet the culture, because schools also do not exist in vacuums, they exist in communities, still uphold 
so quote unquote, because the zero tolerance policies are a lot of times around bullying, but the school culture still upholds that. Um, whose religious holidays get off? Um, does the money, does equal money go to the chess team as well as the football team? You know, let's talk about prom and some of the really, um, you know, specific things around gender with that. So I think a lot of things schools could do is just even explore some of the ways that the culture is still upholding that. Um, Obviously, bathrooms are a huge anxiety for a lot of uh, the young people I work with. And so having gender-inclusive restrooms can really alleviate a lot of that distress. Um, I think, you know, I know that there's a lot of talk right now about, like, what should be included in the education of our young people. And, you know, outside of the political debate, to me, the first place that we learn how to be a community member is school. And if you're going to live in a community, you're living with you're living with a lot of people who are different than you. And so to me it's also just including all of that in all aspects of your curriculum. Because one of the things I I say a lot too is that, um, and this isn't true for all minority status, but one of the unique experiences of LGBTQ plus youth is that most people who have minority statuses come from families who share that minority status with them. LGBTQ youth do not, most of them. And so when we come from a minority place and we have family members who can help us navigate that landscape, LGBTQ youth don't have that oftentimes. And so what happens is that they end up trying to navigate the world on their own. And when they look out into the world and they either see nothing about themselves reflected back or they see only pathology reflected back, what does that do to a soul? Well, it's crushing. And so I think even if we can have in our curriculum or in our libraries, different books, in our histories, different LGBT, like, I don't think it should be just in the area of health education. I think it's easy to disperse that throughout our learning processes. And gender is such an easy way to do it. I mean, it really is. It Like Ryan was saying earlier, gender boxes all of us in. I mean, most people, when you ask them their earliest memories around gender specifically, will have a memory of being told they couldn't do something or they weren't supposed to like, regardless of their gender, because of their perceived gender. So I think um, that to me, inclusivity means a mosaic of how this would look in a school system, not just a policy, not just a bathroom, but how do we interweave this through all facets of the educational system? I think it's interesting that as we've had all these conversations about sex education, that then you kind of say, well, maybe we should take a step back and not be looking just at sex education, but the curriculum and the school environment as a whole. What has been your experience um, with kind of, you know, your students or or patients um, with school? I mean, if they don't have an inclusive environment at home, are they going to turn to schools to look for that? Yes, they can. I mean, I think luckily it can work either way. I mean, one of the things that we talk, one of the the things that I do with a lot of the young people I work with is I call it building gender resilience. And part of resilience is having more protective factors than you do risk factors. Protective factors can come from anywhere. If they can come from your family, that's going to be huge. And maybe Ryan can speak, you know, the stats better than I do just about like, Every health disparity that faces LGBTQ youth plummets when you have family acceptance. If you have a soft place to land, that is like your biggest resource. So I tell parents that a lot, you know. Um, Certainly, if people are coming from homes that it's not safe, they certainly can turn to school. Um, I think that's changed a lot over even in the recent years because sometimes in the past schools did not handle that well and would end up outing a student to a family where that was not safe information to have. And so that really put the student 
in a rock between a rock and a hard place because now the one outlet they had where maybe at school they were going by a different pronoun using a different name even changing clothes and you know keeping a change of clothes in their locker room like that no longer becomes a safe space either so I think a lot of schools are doing better in that area um yeah, certainly. I mean, lots of schools have GSAs or other names for that. Um, certainly, I think, especially for Nebraska and like rural communities, the internet has been huge. Um, you know, there's so many different support services and support systems. And I think for a lot of youth these days, too, um, school is just a place where they can meet people like them. You know, the old saying of birds of a feather flock together. Because I know a lot of parents will oftentimes use that. Like, well, I think my young person is just coming out now because they met a bunch of LGBT people and they've been influenced. And I'm like, that is a possibility. The other possibility is that they're LGBT and found people who are like them and felt safe enough to come, you know, clue you in about this. So um, I'm, I'm noticing, you know, just uh, young people at school too, almost like not even needing support groups because all their friends are LGBT or they find, you know, those. So I think those are those are really big um, helps. Yeah. Do you think they're finding those safe spaces online at all or like on social media? Yes. Definitely. Yeah. Um, especially again, just for kids, like when we're Ryan grew up like in rural areas where they might not have, you know, support groups like we do in Omaha or their high school might not have a GSA, uh, certainly online can be life-saving for them. Um, and there's so many organizations now that have online groups that you can attend. Um, so yeah, I think that can be a, a lifesaver for young people who might not have access otherwise. I do think that there's a lot of great information out there. There's a lot of also bad information out there. I think one of the things why I think it's important um, for this to be in the schools is a couple of reasons. One, there's an assumption that when I hear the argument that families should be doing this, it assumes that families know this information. And I can tell you from 20 years of working with families, they don't. Um, one, because they never received the information or education. And two, because the landscape has changed so much. Um, and three, they just also, I also think like, why are we outsourcing this back to families who most are already taxed as it is? So when I talk to families about like, oh, now we're going to add this onto your plate too. It's like, that's one more thing. Um, I mean, I think the more conversations you can, we're treating this as an event as opposed to a process. Like this, why can't it happen at the family level, at the school level, at your doctor's office, at, you know, everywhere we're talking about this. The other piece of that is that um, these kids are getting so much information that they don't have any context for it. And so I think having safe, healthy adults that you know you can go to and talk to in the school. I mean, that's one of the things in, you know, planning for young people to be in school that we're always identifying who are the safe teachers, who are the safe counselors, who can you go to. Um, so I think having this information because kids are getting so much information from TikTok, from, you know, Instagram, it helps put it into context, uh, which they don't necessarily may not have. Um, do you have any thoughts on that? I think that this would be a good time for us to take a little bit of a pause and shut off all the words coming at us to sit a little bit more with ourselves and explore a little bit more within uh, when it comes to sexuality. Uh, if you look at the CDC Youth Risk Behavior Survey from 1991 to 2019, they have a graph charting sexual behavior among youth. And it's been declining, but between 2015 and 2019, it tanked. So we had in, in 1991 around 51.6, don't quote me on this, because COVID has made my photographic memory not that great right now. Um, so not that I had COVID, I'm just being stuck at home in social isolation for a year and a half, being a public speaker has not been great. But <laughs> it was around like 51.6, maybe 54.6 in 1991. Now it's down to 38.6, I believe, in 2019. So that's a crash of youth even saying that they're having sexual behavior. Yet, if you look at the Trevor Project, they did a national landscape survey 
of youth who identify as LGBT, and currently youth are using over 100 labels for their sexual orientation and over 100 labels for their gender. Yet we're seeing this, 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 this divide between the intellect versus the engagement in social interactions with one another and relationships. Uh, and so I just, I worry that we get stuck too up, far up into our heads and defining things and thinking that that means your sense of self versus actually living life and experiencing things to understand more about who we are. Because those words and labels aren't who we are. Those are words and labels. Who we are is something much more complex inside. Yeah, and do you think that is kind of due to the internet and kind of almost like the over-inundation of information? Absolutely, 100%. Uh, if you're, the more and more we're going to have, I'm a human health behaviorist. So when I speak, I, fo I, f I follow health trends and behaviors and what we find from the science and research for mental health and physical health, right? And I feel we're going to see a lot of different forms of health disparities that are going to be directly correlated to social media use. Uh, one of my areas of expertise is eating disorders and body image. Uh, I've been saying that for at least 25 years. And um, what we used to educate around this is that back in my day <laughs> in college in the early, late 90s, early 2000s, uh, in the research, they would look at women, this is gender specific, uh, and magazines. And they found within three seconds of looking through a magazine, women's self-esteem went down within three seconds of a magazine. And then what we would do is correlate that to advertising and then the different layers of messages and themes that advertising puts out there for one's sense of self and what brings one value, right? Because the advertising focuses on the beauty ideals when that doesn't actually bring someone value. We are in transitional bodies that are mortal beings that can change at any given moment. And as you get more gray in age, then you realize, oh, age is another huge transition in identity and how you're treated and seen in this society. So today now, we're going to look at Instagram, for example. A, a report just came out. They found, found that Instagram now is more likely to show semi-nude photos uh, and their algorithms and then take out, for example, even politicians that have text assigned with the stuff that they post. So these algorithms in the marketing and data are driving human behavior and driving a human culture collective of how we're speaking to one another and what is sexuality. Data and algorithms is not sexuality. Uh, it's actually causing a great deal of problems and f increase. So one of the things is I don't want job security in the work that I do because the work that I do is trying to break down the biases. And currently that's still hap needed because if we look at the health data, our youth are severely struggling with anxiety and depression, right? I don't want that. I want the kids to actually feel empowered in themselves and be okay. You don't have to have yourself figured out. How many kids contact me and say, Ryan, I'm 16. Is it too late for me to transition? I'm like, no, please take your time. Life is not a race. And you know, I understood at 25 who I was and began my transition. Uh, other people will know very young, but don't feel like you have to be pressured to do this because other people are doing it, right? Take your time in your life to learn more about who you are because the last thing I want is for people to get to a point in life and just have that aha moment of, maybe that wasn't the right journey for me. Well, and I, just to piggyback on, I mean, I don't think this is uh, unique to LGBT youth. I think there's extreme pressure that most people have these days to find immediate answers. <laughs> like, so I think they're feeling that, you know, this kind of manic pace that we're all going at uh, prior to COVID. And also this environment that we're living in that demands quick answers to things um in a way we're trying yeah. to push more conformity <laughs> i know the irony isn't it's it irony it's so <laughs> ironic well, you know yeah. being an old lgbt person now even seeing the lgbt community and also how we treat elders in the community is just kind of it's sad and i know that we're going to change it this is a whole part of our growth process uh, all of our parts of working together and also recognizing we didn't know it was going to happen when technology advanced the places it did and where social media has advanced it's a place it did we're in this human experiment all together and now we're gonna be doing the work of understanding where is it that this is healthy and where can we enhance our lives and find connections through these forms of platforms and forms of media and where is it that we need to look at this like a public health crisis like smoking cigarettes and say, okay, this is not good for your psychology and this is causing you more physical and mental distress. Yeah, what do you mean by um, how you were talking about like a tension between kind of like how the queer community is treating its elders? What do you mean by that? Well, I would say for me, I'm now an old 
white man. <laughs> and that's not popular. <laughs> so so it's, it, you can discount a person's journey and experience and what they've done in their life based on physical appearance or based on what you think about their lives and how they live their lives. Uh, so I feel like there's, there's, we've been putting forth this idea of it's okay to judge people. It's okay to have lead with stereotypes or what it is that you see like in a picture and use that to form your opinions about who someone is versus actually being curious about another human being's ex experience uh, and asking questions and having conversation with it, one another again. We learn so much from our elders. Um, that wisdom is what can give us great insight into ourselves where we're currently struggling and also as we age. Uh, and so my hope is that we can join together and have those intergenerational conversations with one another to hear the stories, like the human stories about the experience and how someone, how someone navigated uh, their own struggles in life. Yeah, and I was also kind of going to ask you, um, you know, how do you think your journey would have been different if you would have been maybe like a young person right now? Uh, with social media and the internet. I mean, would have there been any positives to having the internet or having those resources? Or do you feel like you didn't necessarily need that to come across your own journey? Well, you know, so it's interesting because in a way the internet helped my journey as well. Uh, because what happened for me is that um, I didn't understand I was trans until age 24. In December of 2004, I was in Boston, Massachusetts, standing in an LGBT bookstore in the Leather District with my then girlfriend. So I would just come out as lesbian just that earlier that year, and I was partnered. And we were in this section, the transgender section, and I saw a photography book by Rex Cameron uh, called The Body Alchemy. And it was Rex's uh, story, and then also all these other guys that he took photos of. And these were guys that transitioned back in the 70s, 80s, and early, early 90s in San Francisco area. And some of them are my dear friends today, which really makes us more humanizing, right? <laughs> uh, and so I saw this book, and I read the stories, and I'm getting goosebumps because it's just, that's what happens whenever I think about it. I just instantly knew who I was. And so with that, then I got on the internet, which again, 2005, very different landscape than today. But I found three guys' websites, and they shared their physical transitions. And so then I created my own transition diary uh, online that helped guide people until I took it down once because somebody was getting outed from something, and I couldn't figure out how to delete it, and I panicked, and that's what I do sometimes. I really regret that. That would have been really useful today to give to people. But I started my own then transitional diary online. And so the, the online role was very helpful. I, I discovered how to transition and what, what surgeons to go to through uh, anonymous support groups through Yahoo, uh, which Yahoo just shut those down, which is very sad to lose that because Facebook, you don't have that. Um, and so having those anonymous groups were really helpful. Um, so there's definite advantages to these, these platforms. The thing I worry about is people getting too caught up in beauty ideals or too caught up in thinking this surgery or these hormones will make me feel better in life when maybe that's not the answer yet. Maybe there's something deeper you still need to explore to learn more about before you take those steps. Um, and so I, like, I've taken myself mostly off social media. I'm trying to re figure out how to get back on just because you know, I don't want to be used as like the heteronormative looking cis passy white trans that's not who I am right and I don't want to be putting messages across to people and having them think that they'll be happy if they look like me and so it's just this really difficult process to navigate of how do we use these tools to be helpful But th this type of topic is one of the reasons I wrote my second book, Transforming Manhood, because I just got pushed up against that. One, the age barrier, um, and two, just this question of what's currently happening in our society and how we're teaching youth to speak to adults uh, and to one another and how we're teaching them to define who they are and what that means to them. Like, I'm just, I want to just dive into that deeper. Yeah, what have your experiences been like um, talking with young people or maybe young queer people? Um, yeah. I would say this is one of the reasons I love doing university work 
uh, and I haven't been on the university campus in so long. It makes me so sad just because of the pandemic. Uh, you know, I always joke, they all stay the same age and I just keep getting older. Uh, but I just, I see into people that I just, it's really cool when you, when you come out as LGBT because that means that you are exploring, that you're not trying to shut something down, that you're just open to this world around you. And so I just see that they're getting more and more curious to understand if what their feelings are around this. They're just wanting, I mean, Megan could talk to this too, like that emotionality piece is really what youth are grappling with, of understanding who they are and who their voice is. And then the struggle that people are finding is how do I bring out my own individual unique voice versus feeling like I need to stick into the group culture because that's what says, is being said is acceptable when I don't necessarily feel that way, but I'm scared of using my voice or people hurt my feelings when I use my voice because they use name calling and put me down. Uh, and so I'm trying to help youth with building up their own resiliency, like even with their parents. I say, just know if they say something that hurts you, it's not about you, it's about them. It's about their own fears and their own misunderstandings, and they're putting that on you. So don't let that pierce your skin. Just know that that's their own ignorance or their own fears coming through right now. And so youth are really just trying to explore more and more of how do I find myself grounded in who I am even when things come at me that hurt me. Yeah, Megan, do you have any thoughts about that? Yeah, it's hard for me right now in this moment to separate out um, – how youth feel about this versus how much youth just feel about the world as it is today. Because I will say that the youth I'm working with are highly overwhelmed, um, highly anxious, um, wonder if they have a future, are despairing, and feel really lost. And exploring their sexuality and gender in that, you know, I mean, so I think it's hard for me to separate that out at this moment in time. How much is that around the exploration they're doing around themselves versus how much is that where they see themselves fitting into the world as it is today? But I think, as Ryan was saying, our youth are really struggling. I mean, our and it's it's breaking my heart. And I. A lot of times what I try to keep in mind is that I think we are, you know, again, whatever you want to call it, colonization, white supremacy, it's this rugged individualism that is breaking down <laughs> because it doesn't work that way. Um, and I think a lot of these youth are feeling that and I want to be cautious about how much I'm diagnosing the youth versus how much we're diagnosing the society and the culture because I think at this moment in time that's where the diagnosis lies and when you are anxious and depressed um, and you should be that's not anxiety and depression that's just having a human reaction to what's going on so I'm also cautious to label our youth with these kind of diagnostic um, words because to me what they're experiencing is normal and natural for the world that they're living in today so that's I don't know how to answer that at this crux if you would have asked me this two years ago I probably would have had a different answer but right now it's like I can't separate the two well you have the whole world coming at you because of again online technologies and everything all this information about all the terrible things that happen in every single place and environment every single moment it's too overwhelming and you don't have a sense of self and it's like, are, do we have a future? Like we, we ask ourselves that, you know, and I, I'm the hopeful optimistic one, even though I, I'm working on having that back. <laughs> so, uh, you know, and I think the youth really need that. They need people to make them laugh. They need people to make them feel that they can be present and just stay in this moment and open up to just the things around them and get off phones, <laughs> get off technologies. It's hard, though, because, again, I agree with Ryan, like, but also just like I had to take a break from the news because I realized I, I was using that a lot last year. But I also was compassionate with myself because it's like, but information sometimes is how you navigate safety and risk. And so for these young people, Right now, our country is on the attack of trans youth. I mean, just look at, and Ryan can talk about this more too, but just looking at all the bills coming up about trans athletes and bathroom bills and if youth can access medical treatments in Arkansas. So they also 
have this hard place where it's like, yes, get offline, but they also feel like, but I need to know what's coming. Am I, you know, and so it's this hard place that they're in because I have so many youth worry like, oh, is that going to happen in Nebraska? Will I not be able to access my hormones? Will I even be able to see you for therapy? So some of these are very real. Um, but when you're hearing this, because a lot of times these things don't pass or don't go through, thank God. Um, <laughs> but it still is, they feel like they need this information to be able to navigate what's coming down for them. Several years ago, I quit posting all the bills and everything online. And the reason why I did that is because I recognized that 98% of the time they don't go through, right? Or they, they, they get stopped or, or they get blocked by a judge. or And the, so I quit doing that because I didn't want to form hysteria for people and have them focus on all that versus just focusing on their lives as youth just figuring out who they are and building your own life development skills at that present moment, right? That's why we have organizations like the ACLU in place or the Human Rights Campaign or National Center for Transfer Equality or Lambda Legal, Southern Poverty Law Center. They're all out there doing work with passionate people to make it so that these youth do not have these harmful bills going forward. Um, and so I, I just wish kids could be kids <laughs> instead of having the pressures that are put upon them. And I, I wish us as adults would be adults and actually be mature. Uh, I'm sickened by politicians and what they do and how everybody wants to be a celebrity. I joke with Megan now. It's like, oh, politicians are now celebrities. Celebrities are now politicians. Patients are now the doctors. Doctors are fearful of lawsuits. We're in a litigious society. Like, we got we to gotta do some... Uh, this is what pandemics are supposed to do. They're supposed to uh, be era-shifting moments where you see you need great state of change. And in the past with pandemics like this, what would happen with different countries is they would switch them to universal health care. And it also was seen as a renaissance and a new awakening. So we have this uh, from back in even to the 13th, 14th, and 15th century of scientists documenting pandemics. Uh, so this pandemic, we should be pre-COVID and now post-COVID once we come out of it and say, what was the past is no longer because we have evolved as human beings and our younger generations look at this world differently than what the explorers and different people did in the past. Um, and it's time for us to treat each other kindly. Well, thank you so much for listening to uh, the first podcast of Reader Radio. Uh, I want to thank Ryan and Megan. Um, you can find their information down in the description if you want to connect with them or learn uh, more about what they do. Thank you so much to Emma for uh, doing this interview and for just being a stellar um, summer intern. Um, this podcast was produced by me, Chris Bowling, at our offices in South Omaha. Um, the music is by John Ricks. You can find him at P0H underscore K. Our uh, theme music was produced by me and him. The song that you're listening to right now is called All That by Ben Sound. Um, thank you so much for you know listening to Reader Radio, and stay tuned uh, for more in the future.